Introduction by Pam Bellock. Don't just sit there. Do something. Well, listen to this audiobook first, and then do something. You'll be motivated, I promise, because you are about to encounter a collection of stories that will nudge your neurons and home in on your heart. These are not airbrushed, sanitized stories. They are flush with open-eyed realism, engaging with the world's problems, even if some are potently painful, even if we may never have anything close to a perfect solution. They challenge us to face, within the world and within ourselves, the complex, difficult, intricate, sometimes internally contradictory truth. This book is a collection of health-related fiction, but its definition of health is broad. Physical and mental and emotional, social and spiritual. Health, after all, is rarely just a single, simple thing. It includes the gamut of how we feel about and toward ourselves, and about and toward each other. Our world today is remarkable and terrifying. Scientific and medical advances unspool at a dizzying pace. We can edit genes in human embryos, grow miniature models of hearts and brains from stem cells, sift through gigantic haystacks of digital data to find the needle that identifies a hitherto unknown virus. We can keep people who previously would have died alive. Whether they are tiny, premature babies or melanoma patients who are candidates for immunotherapy, we can implant electrodes into the brain to reduce the tremors of Parkinson's or allow some people with blindness to experience a semblance of sight or make it possible for quadriplegics to move an arm or a leg. But such phenomenal progress hasn't solved some of our most long-standing public health problems. And some of them are so widespread and basic that they don't require technological genius. They mostly require will and attention and resources. Poverty, isolation, prejudice, child abuse, conspiracy theories, war, displacement, discrimination, disenfranchisement, distrust. These are the forces that undergird public and private health, and many of the stories in this collection address them directly or indirectly. In Paradise, Hannah Lilith Asadi writes of Rita and her Syrian refugee family, faced with eking out a new life in Arizona, where even the desert bears scant resemblance to the desert they were forced to flee. What they carried with them are memories and wounds that scar, traumatize, and almost paralyze them as they strive within the limits of a society that welcomes them on paper, but makes asylum hard in practice. As refugees, public assistance is available for some of their medical care, but not for cosmetic problems, like the bullet-mangled hand of Rita's brother Hussein. Her father, who won't accept financial help for his bullet-mangled spine unless his son's injury can be fixed too, has retreated to protect his sanity and dignity watching the Weather Channel and letting Rita's after-school pizzeria job 
provide income and interaction with the workaday world. When they are not being bullied, their physical and psychological scars are ignored. Even by a Syrian-American doctor, who has long ago become so acculturated, he cannot understand Arabic. America provides a lifeline to the refugees it accepts, but does little to help them heal. But if society falls short, individuals can make a difference, several of the stories suggest. They can do so in ways that deploy their special skills and, in the process, repair some of their own emotional cracks. In viral content, a journalist who has been through her share of emotional losses persists on a story. Even though the editor of the media platform she works for doesn't seem to care about journalism that performs a public service. Ultimately, she roots out the reason for the death of a promising high school football player, and, though it's too late for some of his teammates, she helps keep others from dying of the same cause. In The Masculine and the Dead, we enter the post and present traumatic world of an American combat veteran whose volunteer deployments in Afghanistan caused him to miss the death of his wife from cancer and ruptured his relationship with his son. He uses his experience in ground-level diplomacy to help his community reinvent itself into a prospering economic cooperative and then confronts the pernicious situation of a boy who is mercilessly abused by his father. But although with the horrifying victimization of the boy, there is no moral ambiguity about who is on the angel's side. There is a complicated quandary underneath. When is it possible to rescue the innocent and the oppressed? Can we do it victim by victim, community by community? What are the limits of that approach? And might it ever backfire? The erasure game shows, disturbingly, that good intentions can go too far, that the right thing to do might not always be the best thing to do, or at least that the goal isn't everything. The means must be justified, not just the ends. In the story, Yoon Ha Lee creates a health-obsessed police state wherein how well we work on wellness is watched. Orwell meets organically grown. People earn points for eating right, exercising right, helping out in their communities. What could possibly be wrong with that? Only that people must sacrifice freedom and individuality for a plain vanilla cookie-cutter world where a chocolate bar is a subversive curse. A different sort of dystopia, an uncomfortably realistic one, confronts us in Karen Lord's The Plague Doctors. It is only 60 years from now, and the earth is being racked by a deadly infectious disease, with bodies from the mainland washing up on an island where Dr. Audra Lee is desperate to find an answer in time to save her pox-exposed six-year-old niece. It's the kind of global pandemic that should prompt all-hands-on-deck cooperation. But Dr. Lee finds herself working not only against a disease, but also against a veil of secrecy and selfishness erected by wealthy elites who want to prioritize a cure for themselves. Will she be tempted to cross the line of scientific ethics to relieve her own family's suffering?
Speaking of ethical sins, how can we atone for the public health crimes of our ancestors, those whose businesses made money off of raping the Earth's resources, dumping toxic waste, destroying habitats, polluting the atmosphere? It's one of the many trenchant thought experiments that emerge in the flotilla at Bird Island, which takes place when climate change has already destroyed New York and is wreaking devastation on Atlanta and much of the rest of the Atlantic seaboard. The burning atmosphere and drowning coastline are making all still living things sick. Everyone suffers, but everyone doesn't suffer equally. The lines for vaccines are longest, for example, where the poorest people of color live. In Mike McClellan's telling, the climate catastrophe is, and certainly will be, vast and unsparing. But then McClellan leads us on a journey through a gradually blooming wellspring of hope until we, like his character Kyle, are allowed to enter a secret utopia created by Kyle's rich and mysterious old friend Bobby as a way of making amends for the environmental transgressions of his grandfather. It is an amazing community where people from all walks and whereabouts are living happily engaged, healthily individualized lives. But there are unanswered questions too. Can the world be saved in this way or just bits and pieces of it? And are there sacrifices society would be unwilling to make in return for this kind of salvation? The sacrifices of salvation make for an eerie, unearthly undercurrent in Martha Wells's murder mystery, Obsolescence, which is literally about the unearthly, a space station world in a time long after Earthlings colonized Mars. As they age and life knocks them around, folks in this world become fixer-uppers, retrofitted with augments, prosthetic parts that refurbish their arms, legs, hearts. But there's a dark side. Of course, it's science fiction. All those who are augmented are not augmented equally or treated equally. So one person's salvation hardware can turn into someone else's salvaged spare parts. Health isn't just about medicine, of course, and it isn't just about physical, psychological, or sociological ills. Health can be about the mind and heart in ways that are largely personal and intimate. The interior pushing against the exterior. The inside struggle to live within what's outside. That struggle rings through in The Sweet Spot, a story that is fundamentally about how we cope with changing relationships and about how our well-being affects people close to us and how people close to us affect our well-being. When we have trouble hearing the ones we love, literally in The Sweet Spot, as Issa drifts closer to deafness, we need to examine why. And the answer may be telling us to accept a seismic shift in our relationships. The reverberations of listening and hearing also play a key role in brief exercises in mindfulness. Its title suggesting the kind of self-help volume you might ignore on the bookstore shelves, 
because a flashier title beckons. In the piece, Calvin Baker deconstructs the subtle within the seismic, or perhaps the seismic within the subtle. Two roommates, Harry and Dean, confronting the real world after college, jump to superficial conclusions about others and each other, even as Harry tries to remind Dean and himself to really listen to the stories of others, because all the dead religions and dead saints said such listening would trigger the most profound sense of empathy. But empathy can be an ethereal element, camouflaged by the day-to-day of dealing with one's job, friends, lovers, and hoped-for lovers. These roommates who are carpetbaggers in a gentrifying neighborhood, where their presence has displaced the folks who couldn't afford to stay, come dangerously close to losing their own sense of place. If it's that simple, says Dean about Harry's empathy recipe, why doesn't everyone just goddamn listen and trigger this allegedly profound cure to all our goddamned problems? Implicitly, there is another message threaded through this vibrant collection, a challenge to offer more than a commitment to integrity and values, more than a recognition that many of these problems aren't easy. None of us can afford to be passive, certainly not in these times. What can each of us bring to the table? How can we use our specific talents and skills to make things better? We all need to contribute to finding solutions that are as honorable and equitable and effective as possible. These stories inspire us not just to think, not just to feel, but to do.